I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, Madeline is going to speak to us about her dear mother who just celebrated her 93rd birthday and is sponsoring this class to celebrate her. Go ahead, Madeline. We can't hear you. Unmute. Yeah. Welcome to everybody. Okay, good morning, everybody. Thank you. Um, So, I'm so sorry to correct the Robinson, but my mother's... English name is Moselle, and the oh. Hebrew name is Mazel Tov. So actually a very cute anecdotal um, story because, um, Devorah, you're very famous for telling anecdotal stories about your parents that we always are very entertained to hear, um, is that whenever my father had an aliyah in Shul in Clanton Park, and uh, the Gabbai would start, you know, giving the... the whatever and and my and it's usually just like a garble of you know words you can't hear very clearly exactly what's being said but there's a blessing being said for all the names of the people that you know the the, the particular person having the aliyah wants to um, send a blessing to members of the family etc so everybody would always pick up on the muzzle tub right because he would of course be uh, mentioning his wife's name and after my father would step down from the bima, everybody would go, "No, Naftali, what's the muzzle tub? What's the muzzle tub? <laughs> so that That's was funny. Cute. Yeah. Um, my mother is a very um, intrepid, incredible person, you know, Kanaina Hara. And um, as Devora mentioned, um, her attachment to going to shul and the routine of shul and... Um, the need to be there and follow the services and listen to the rabbi, etc., and just interact with all the people has been um, just um, a constant in her life. My mother is Sephardic background. Um, she was born in Shanghai, China, and I'm just going to give you like some highlights. Um, her parents were born in Bombay, India, and before them, the Sassoons brought my, grand- my great-grandparents down to um, India from Baghdad. So the family originates in Baghdad through Bombay to Shanghai and then uh, liberated by the Americans after they were interned in um, enemy camps um, in Shanghai during the war. And then because of my mother's British passport, British status, she was able to uh, emigrate to England and from there made her way to Toronto, and um, she met my father at a shul function, of course, on a Friday night at a shear um, um, with Rabbi, um, I think it was Rabbi Shields, Alava Shalom, I, I, I can't remember for sure, but I have a feeling, and, um, and my father walked her home from that shear on a um, blistery 
you know, winter night. They did not share a common language. My mother was an English speaker only, Sephardic background, etc. Um, and my father was a survivor of the Holocaust from Poland, from Galicia. But somehow they had a connection and, um, and, and God blessed them with uh, 52 years of marriage. So um, I dedicate today to my mother. She should live and be well. And we should give her an office, and she should continue to enjoy going to shul. And she very much liked Rabbi Vale and Robinson Vale when they were rabbis at uh, Clanton Park. And I turn it over to the Robinson. Okay, thank, thank you. you so much, Madeline, and thank you for sponsoring this class. And I see some new faces. I love to see Simone Levine. Hi, Simone. Haven't seen you in a while. And Harriet and Shelley and Mar Marta. And some new names here. I'm really happy to have some new people on. Okay, I'm going to mute everybody now. And we're going to start. Um, okay, we're going to start. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. We're going to start our final class on the four elements. It doesn't matter when you jump in because it's all connected and you can learn something from each of the classes. For those of you who have missed the four classes before this one, which are on the four elements, you can always go to my uh, podcast called Accessing Your Best Self, or you can just type in my name, Devorah Vale, and it will come up on any of the podcast stations. And this series has been a series where we just have been discussing that in the same way that the outside world is composed of the four elements earth, water, wind, and fire, so too our rabbis teach us, and we have a long tradition of the idea that every human being is composed of these four elements, earth, water, wind, and fire, and they actually are the building blocks of our character traits. Each one of us, of course, has different measurements of these four. We may be predominant in earth, predominant in water, um, but we're composed of all four of them, and each is found in each one of them. They all contain each other as well. So we talked about Earth being the most physical at the bottom of the triangle, right? The most physical of all the elements. It's that survival instinct, that primal, primal need to survive physically. And, you know, it's the stability and security that a person wants to feel on this Earth, in this world. And of course, like all of the elements, it has its positive manifestations and it's negative. We said that in its negative form, the earthy personality, right, leads to sluggishness and sadness and laziness. It's that very physical part of us that, you know, we just want to lie on the couch and eat potato chips. We don't really want to get up and do anything. Also, in terms of negative character traits, it can deteriorate into a type of a jealousy, and a desire for material acquisitions, you know, above all else, because it's this part of human beings that feel like this scarcity mindset, that there's not enough for everybody, that if I don't get it, you're going to get it, or you're going to take something away from me that belongs to me. And of course, this is epitomized by the first murder in history in the Torah, Cain, who kills his brother Hevel, right? 
And God says to him there, he calls him a man of the earth many, many times. And God says to him there, listen, if you're going to be sad and crestfallen over the fact that you brought me a less than good sacrifice, then sin is always going to be crouching at your door. You're just going to keep going in this downward spiral. You need to pick yourself up, fight against your earth element, and do teshuva. And then we spoke about the water element. We said that the water element is emotion. It's, uh, it, it's the emotions in a person. It's like water. It's very fluid. It changes all the time, right? You can have still waters. You can have waters that are rough and, and wild and threatening. And these are the emotions that a person goes through, you know, daily, weekly, whatever, in their life. And of course, this, again, is a element which we have to harness and channel. Because the, the water element is also the place where we are creatures who pursue pleasure, right? We will run from pain and we will pursue pleasure at all costs. And this element teaches us that we have to be the masters of using the pleasures of this world in order to develop ourselves spiritually, in order to use them to connect to Hashem as opposed to run away from him or fall into kinds of addictions and, you know, replacements for that spiritual life that we really crave, fill it with other things, with material pleasures, with things that are actually bad for us. And we know that the flood, Noah's generation was a generation that deteriorated into a life of decadence, you know, pleasure-seeking, illicit relationships of all kinds even down to the animals who were having, you know, relations with different species. And God, of course, destroys that generation with water, right? Mita keneged mita, as we say, measure for measure. Last week, we talked about the element of wind. Wind, of course, is the intellect of a human being. It's our thoughts. It's our speech, ruach wind right it's what makes us above the animal kingdom because we have you know very high thoughts where we consider things and where we have moral choices to make which the animal world does not have where we have this incredible intellect which you know makes us in the image of god and of course there too we can either use our mind and our thoughts for you know idle type of thoughts and speech you know speaking about people instead of speaking about ideas we can fill our minds with all kinds of you know books all about you know harlequin romances if you like with those kind of things or we can pursue what we're meant to pursue with our minds which is what is the truth of the world what are the eternal truths how should i be living my life you know how can i connect to god and we said that you know our thoughts can bring us down or they can bring us up the city of happiness we always say is in the state of mind and so you know what we think about things definitely um affects our emotions and from our emotions we act so the three things that are the clothing of the soul so to speak are our thoughts everything begins with our thoughts the rosh the head Everything begins from the beginning, right? That's why our head is, is called the Rosh, the beginning, right? And then it goes to our lave, right? A melech is somebody whose moach is on the top. 
Then it goes to the lave, the heart. And finally, the, the chaf of melech is the klayim, which is wisdom or which is the place of action, our kidneys. The rabbis teach us are our place of wisdom and action. Just to review, last week, we spoke about the idea that darkness, grease, and this holiday that we're coming up to, and I want to mention Hanukkah because we're going into the element of fire today. I don't think it's any coincidence that, of course, Hanukkah is the festival of lights. It's the festival of fire. And here we are. We arrive perfectly on time to the last and the most spiritual of all the elements at the very top of the triangle, which is the fire element. And just to review, we said that the the battle between Greece, which in Hebrew is spelt Yavan, right? And between the Jewish people was a battle between darkness and light, between a transcendent and super rational relationship with the world, as opposed to a relationship of materialistic and rationalism which is what the Greeks believed in, okay? We said that the letters of the word Greece, Yavan, are, look like quicksand, right? A person is sinking, starting with the Yud and the Vav and the Nun, sinking into the material world, right? We said that in this uh, famous poem, Ode to a Grecian Urn, John Keats says that the, you can sum up Greek philosophy with the last lines of that poem, beauty is truth, and truth is beauty, and that is all you need to know. Now, of course, we Jews also love beauty, and we also love pleasure. And God created this world to give us a lot of pleasure. He wants us to take advantage of it. But it is not an end in itself. It's not art for art's sake. The whole purpose of everything that we have in this world, the water element going back, is to take the pleasures of this world and give thanks to God for them, and develop ourselves through them, develop our ability to see God and the beauty of the world and to connect to him. And that's why the same letters of the word Yavan in Hebrew, if you put the tzaddik in front, you have the word Sion. Sion, which is the place in this world where heaven and earth meet. Har Sion, right? The mountain where God or God and the Jewish people, so to speak, connect. And what's the difference? You have the word Yavan in that word because beauty, again, is not antithetical to Judaism. Sorry. We're told that at the end of our lifetime, when we go to heaven, one of the questions that God will ask us is, did you partake of all the permitted pleasures that I created in the world for you to enjoy? And we'll actually have to give a deen v'cheshbon, an accounting of why we didn't, you know, eat that food that was permitted. Or as Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Her says, you know, God will ask, did you see my Alps? Did you go to Switzerland? Did you go to the beautiful places in the world and say, wow, look at the artistry of God. Look at what God can create and become exhilarated and awed by it. See on very interesting, the letter tzaddik, right? which the word sadik is means a righteous person, somebody who's striving to be like God, 
just as we were created in God's image, it means that we have the ability to be like God. Just as God is compassionate, we need to be compassionate. Just as God is giving, we need to be giving. But look at the letter tzaddik. Even the way the letter is um, written teaches you about it. If you notice, a tzaddik is a nun. It's a bent over nun. Okay, you learn this in this book called The Wisdom of the Hebrew Alphabet, which shows you that even the way the letter is drawn is teaching you something. And on the back of the letter nun is a little yud resting on the back. And what the letter is telling us is that is what a tzaddik is. A tzaddik is somebody who is a ne'eman, from the word nun, a believer, right? Someone who believes that there's something greater than him, that he's not the center of the universe, right? We all come into this world believing we are the center of the universe. As one rabbi said, I think it was the Kutzker Rebbe, he says, I pray to God to remember that I'm not God, okay? A tzaddik is somebody who's bent over, who's humble. And what's resting on his back? A yud. And the yud always represents God, the number 10, the number of completion. So again, there's nothing wrong with the beauty in the world and pursuing pleasures within reason if they're helping you to get higher, to get closer to God. But the tzaddik has to be there at the beginning, and then Yavan turns into Tzion, right? Again, back to um, God gave Noah's son, Yefet, which means Yafa, beauty, which is where the Greek people came from. God gave them a bracha that said, Yefet should dwell in the tents of shame. That Yofi and beauty is beautiful, but only when it's in the tent of shame, the Jewish people, because we know how to take beauty and use it as a means towards an end. Use it as a means to connecting to God. Okay, so let's go to light and fire, okay? Light and fire is the most spiritual of all the elements and of all physical creations. We said that light fire is the only creation that actually goes against gravity, right? Everything else, like the word Yavan, sinks, also, we said last week, just, just another idea that Yavan, that conform, conformity is like the letters of Yavan. You know, we start conforming. We, we talked about the question, you know, we'd all like to think that if we lived in the times of Hanukkah, we would have been the Maccabees. We would have been with the Hashmonai. But the truth of the matter is, is most Jews were against the Maccabees and against the Hashmonai. And they embraced the Greek culture as did all the peoples of the world at that time. And we talked about the idea of decide, don't slide. And the letters of the word Yavan also show that, you know, human nature is that we conform, that we're broken. You know, when we see a new fashion that we might think, for example, is ugly, when we first look at it, if we see it over and over again on people, you know, wearing it, Eventually, what happens is we decide it's, 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 it's cute or we like it. And, you know, we'll run out and buy it where we might have our first impression might have been, ugh. So this is the idea of conformity, that human beings naturally conform. And this is what most Jews did at the time of Hanukkah. 
But of course, Hanukkah is about light. It's about fire. It's about going against what's natural, right? The Greeks believed in Teva, nature, that there's nothing above nature. The Greeks made gods in their image. The, the struggle between this darkness and light was that the Jewish people believed that there is something above nature, right? That seven, which is the number that represents nature, the seven days of the week, that we live on the level of eight. The number eight, actually, if you put it on its side, is a symbol of infinity, right? We live above nature. And we connect ourselves to a God that is above nature. You know, he's obviously in nature and he's in everything. He's infused in everything physical. But he's above nature. And that is the secret of the Jewish people. Okay. So one of the questions that is asked, just a little bit about Hanukkah before we get into our, wind, our fire element you know, one of the famous questions that's asked is, why do we light eight candles on Hanukkah? After all, there was enough oil for the first night. So what was the miracle of the first night? Really, we should light seven. We had oil for the first night. The miracle lasted for seven days. So there are many, many answers to this question. It's a famous question that why do we light eight if we already had one? And one of the most wonderful answers that I love is the idea that we Jews believe that nature itself is miraculous. Nature, what we call nature, are just miracles that we've gotten used to, that we've seen so many times, right? The leaves changing color, the making way for winter, right? The new buds that come up after the seven months of a freezing cold winter in Canada, which really are miraculous. How do they come up after being under the ground for all of these months in dead, cold, dead, as far as we know? But the idea is, is that we live with constant miracles, but we become dulled and desensitized to them because that's the way it's supposed to be. So there's a beautiful story in the Gemara that tells of a rabbi named Rabbi Hanina Bendosa. It's a very famous Hanukkah story. Rabbi Hanina Bendosa was extremely poor. This is the way most of the stories begin about Rabbi Hanina Bendosa, who was a great rabbi. And one Hanukkah, he was so poor that they had no oil to light the menorah. And his daughter came to him frantically and said, Father, Abba, Tati, whatever you call him, Daddy, you know, we don't have any oil to light the menorah. What are we going to do? And Rabbi Hanina said to his daughter, he said, well, do we have any vinegar? And she said, yeah, we have vinegar. He said, okay, so take the vinegar and put it in the menorah and it'll be okay. And his daughter was like, what are you talking about, dad? Vinegar doesn't light. It's not going to work. And Rabbi Hanina Bendosa, who was such a great believer in God and able to see behind the veils of nature, right? 
we said the word olam, which means world, is the same root as the word he'elam, to hide. That God hides himself behind nature, right? Rabbi Tanita Mendoza says to his daughter, listen, the same God that says oil should light can also say vinegar should light. <laughs> right? And she goes and she gets the vinegar. And sure enough, for Rabbi Hanina Mendoza, who doesn't see any difference between natural and miracle, they light. And that's why we celebrate eight days, because we Jews are saying even the first night was a miracle. The fact that fire lights, the, sorry, the fact that oil lights is something to celebrate because the same God who says oil should light can, can, can change nature in a minute and say that vinegar should light. Now we have a claw, we have a foundational idea in Judaism that God doesn't like to do miracles, right? He could be doing miracles that are unnatural all day long. He wants us to see the miracle in the natural, in the everyday, to be amazed and awed and open up our eyes and realize that we are living with constant miracles and that we, the Jewish people, are a constant miracle, right? We defy all the laws of nature, all the laws of history. We live on the number eight. And that was our struggle with the Greeks who insisted that we stop and embrace their world which ended with the rational mind. Okay, so let's go into this idea of fire. Again, fire is the highest of all elements. It represents will, motivation, the desire to grow and change. Fire, because it goes up, is that spirit in the human being that wants to reach for more that wants to be more, that passion that drives us to grow. Now, the obstacles that get in the way of the fire personality, the things that we have to watch out for as a fiery person is inflated ego, pursuit of power for its own sake, anger, of course, right? Fiery personalities. and criticism of others we said in other classes that when we criticize other people for the fiery person who's critical it's a counterfeit way of feeling like you're growing right if I can dig a hole for you and I can look higher because of it then I get this illusory sense that I'm better I'm bigger I've grown but it's not real right the fiery personality in its proper manifestation wants to grow and change and destroy, so to speak, the level below it so that it can move to the next level, but not destroy people along the way. And it's very, very difficult. Now, we said the narrative in the Torah that corresponds to the fire element is the story of Sidom. Sidom that was destroyed. Mita connected Mita, measure for measure, with fire, right? We know even today when you visit Israel 
and you go to that area where Sodom was, the tour guide will point out Lot's wife, a pillar of salt along the side of the road, right? But nothing grows there. To this day, nothing grows there. There's salt, which is a good commodity, but nothing grows there. And even salt figures very largely in the story of Sodom, right? Now, what was Sodom? Sodom was this city of beauty and wealth that Lot, Abraham's nephew, chose to go to when Lot and Abraham split up and go their separate ways. Lot chooses the city of negative, evil, nasty people, but it's a place of incredible wealth and beauty. And the people there, because of this, it caused them to think that they were better than other people, right? They had laws in Sodom to enforce inhospitality. You're not allowed to have guests here. We don't want any people coming into our country and taking our goods or deciding to stay here. It's usher, right? Forbidden to have guests. Now, what we would say is, was that the root of Lot's issues, I'm sorry, of Sodom's issues, is that their affluence caused them to forget God. And that's a byproduct of arrogance. Instead of realizing where their blessing came from, right, their gratitude was short-circuited if they had any gratitude at all. Or the way they felt is the way we describe in the Torah, God says about the Jewish people, kohi the otsim yadi, my strength, my smarts, my talents, kohi the otsim yadi, these are what produced these results. Nothing to do with God. Because of me, I'm smart. I know how to make good business deals. Right? So this is the kind of attitude that is antithetical to Judaism. And whenever the Jewish people themselves came throughout history, and we saw it many times to a place of high society, of success in every way in terms of the secular idea of success, it wouldn't be long until we would have a huge fall, right? We don't have to look so far back in our history, even in Germany, where the Jews had reached tremendous secular success. In Spain, it was no different. I'm sure in Greece as well, the Hellenistic Jews were at the top of society. But the cycle of Jewish history is always that we rise to the top. We forget God. We forget our mission. We become, as I said last week, more goyish than the goyim. Even better at their tennis game and their golf club games. We beat them, right? And the next step is that we go down. We become either oppressed by them, as happened in Egypt, right? And God reminds us, you are oil and they are water. Oil and water, if you shake it really hard, it will mix itself up. But if you leave it alone, the oil will naturally rise to the top. Because the Jewish people are supposed to be, right, 
Amnivhar, the chosen people, the choosing people, the ones who are supposed to be a light, Hanukkah, right? A light to the nations, showing the nations of the world the way back to God. The whole history of mankind is mankind running from God, running from morality and truth. And the Jewish people are here to remind everybody else what happens when you do that. And the beauty of the good life of realigning oneself with the purpose of the world and God, right? Okay, so we have Sodom, and now what we're going to talk about, which works out perfectly with our Parsha, which this week's Parsha is Vayesha, that begins the story of Yosef, the tikkun of proper use of fire, our Yosef, the story of Yosef, and Yehuda. Okay, two leaders of the, of the 12 tribes, they are the two figures in the 12 tribes of Israel who are destined to become leaders of the Jewish people. And each of them teach us different nuances about what it means to use the element of fire. Now, fire people are natural leaders. A lot of what fire represents is leadership. The ability to rise to the top, the ability to be a flame and a light for other people. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs Zatzal wrote a book called Leadership. And in it, he says that good leaders create followers. Great leaders create leaders. Okay. So what makes them successful and what makes a person fail? So looking at the stories of Yosef and Yehuda, we get to understand what the Torah teaches us about good leadership and what qualities are essential for each one of us who is meant to lead in one way or another, right? Whether you're a mother, whether you're at work, wherever you go out into the world, people are looking at you and you are a light, and so these qualities of leadership are very important for all of us to know and to learn. Now, one of the things that we say about great leaders is that there's a certain duality that's contained in the idea of being a great leader. On the one hand, there's fear. Fear, right? Whenever a person is moving out of their comfort zone or taking some kind of leadership position, even in their own life, right? Even when we decide... I want to do something different. I want to tap into my artist self. I want to, you know, take a course. I want to open a small business. The first thing that grips us is fear. And all the negative voices that come and say, you can't do that. You know, I'm, I'm reading and learning through a book with a friend of mine called The Artist's Way. It's an old book. My, I was bequeathed it by my mother. So I thought it was great that she wanted to go through this. She herself wants to write a one-woman show, a one-woman play, so she was hoping together we could unlock our artistry, but a lot of what this book talks about is the fear of saying you're an artist, thinking you're an artist, you know, taking those steps towards actualizing what they say in this book, all of us are. We all have natural, artistic, creative selves, that can be stifled very early in life, you know, 
I remember myself, you know, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be an actress. And, you know, I used to discuss with my mother and my grandmother. I remember once sitting, to, talking to them. And, you know, I was saying, you know, I, I, I've got to suffer if I want to be an artist. And I've got to like, you know, give up everything else for the sake of my artistry. And of course, my mother and my Bobby, they were saying, listen, you get married, you have children, and you can do this on the side. You know, this can be your hobby. I'm like, no, it can't be a hobby. Okay. If I'm going to be great, this cannot be a hobby. Do you think that Picasso did it as a hobby? I mean, not a hobby. It's got to be my life, right? Anyway, of course, they totally disagreed with me. They said, no, you have children. That's how you live through the children. You'll get, you know, you ch change the world with your children, right? No, I, I was a teenager. I wasn't buying that. But anyway, the point is, is that it's very difficult to do something new, to take yourself out of your comfort zone, to rise, because fear will be the first thing that you meet. Fear of failure, fear of success. There's so much written on it. But fire is the will and the motivation to rise above, to be fearless, to destroy the obstacles that, you're in, that are in the way. But as we also said, the danger with fire is that it's also the root of pride and arrogance. And with success comes a swelling of the ego that makes you feel that you're better than other people. Now, it's interesting that God himself says about himself. God describes the duality of great leadership. He says, wherever you see my greatness, that's where you will also find my humility. That somehow greatness and humility have to live together, right? We say, they say about Moshe, that Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest of all the prophets that ever lived, right? The consummate Jewish leader. And yet the Torah says about him, he was ish anav me'od. He was the most humble human being that ever lived. So the duality of great leadership is knowing your greatness, knowing who you are and what you're capable of, and retaining that humility at the same time, holding both things in your hand at the same time. That duality has to exist together. Greatness and humility, fearlessness and modesty. Another seeming duality, right? So we learn both of these things from Rachel's son, Yosef, and from Leah's son, Yehuda. They teach us how to use the element of fire. And this comes through their challenges as leaders of the Jewish people. So in this week's Parsha, it's really interesting, but the first Rashi in this week's Parsha actually um, talks about fire. In last week's Parsha, the very way it ends is that there's a whole genealogy of Asaph and Asaph's children. And basically, last week's Parsha ends with about a whole description. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, and it names each one. Sorry, and then it goes on to say, these are the names of the chiefs of Asa. And it names all the chiefs of Asa. And it says basically at the beginning of this week's Parsha that Yaakov is thinking, gee whiz, there's all these chiefs of Asa. How are we ever going to, who's going to be able to beat them, 
right? Asaph eventually becomes Rome, right? Great warriors, they, they took over the world. And Jacob is already thinking when he sees all these chiefs coming from Asaph, who's going to be able to beat them? Meanwhile, it says there that the house of Jacob is a fire and the house of Yosef is a flame. And that the house of Asaph is like straw. That eventually one day, the Jewish people will burn up, so to speak, the evil and the negative in the world, the way fire consumes straw. It will be that easy and simple. Okay. That Yosef, Rashi tells us, will be the solution to the problem of Asaph's progeny that will spread out and be powerful in the world right? That Yosef is the solution to the problem, it says. Nitzut yotze mi Yosef. A spark shall go forth from Yosef, which will annihilate and burn them up. Okay, so it's a promise that at the end of days, the Jewish people will be able to rid the world of this evil, this godlessness, right? So we know the story of Yosef. We all know it, right? The story begins where we, they talk about, you know, these are the children of Yaakov, and then it just says Yosef, right? It doesn't mention anybody else teaching us that Yosef was, God, was Yaakov's favorite son. He was the son of Rachel, the wife that he loved the most, right? And so he had a place in his heart, and there was also known that Yosef was like the Bechor in a sense, because he was the firstborn of the wife that Yaakov wanted to marry primarily and first before he was tricked with Leah, right? And it says about Yosef at the beginning of the Parsha, not very complimentary. It calls him a na'ar. A na'ar is a negative word, usually, okay? Which basically says that he was a 17-year-old youth who was very into his looks, who was constantly preening himself and fixing his hair, etc., etc. He saw, he knew he was a good looking guy, right? Tell the Torah tells us he was so gorgeous that when he went down to Potiphar's house, women used to hang off the balconies all over, you know, even in Egypt, just to catch a glimpse of him. He was so gorgeous, right? Anyway, but in these days, in his youthfulness, his behaviors made him very unpopular to his brothers. Number one, they knew the father loved him the most, but also he used to tattletale on his brothers. He used to go to his father and talk about all their flaws, all the flaws that his brothers had. And of course, this made him very unpopular with them. But what made him even more unpopular was when he started to tell them his dreams. And of course, the dreams were all about how one day Yosef is going to be ruler over them. And the brothers say to him, after they hear these dreams, would you rule over us? Would you then dominate us? The brothers knew that Yehuda, of all the brothers, is where the kings of Israel will come from. And that Yehuda is the real leader of all the brothers. And so they looked at Yosef as being the Yishmael and the Asab of their family. Well, after all, our grandfather right? Our great-grandfather and our grandfather, they both had one bad seed, right? Who was not meant to be part of the Jewish people. We've got one too. It's Yosef. Listen to how he talks. 
He's going to be ruling over us. We're going to bow down to him. When he tells his dream, even his father Yaakov says, what are you saying? Now, Yaakov knew that Yosef was going to be destined for leadership, but he played it down because he knew the brothers were very nervous about this. Anyway, but what we focus on throughout the story of Yosef is his incredible humility. As Yosef rises to power, we know the story, right? From Potiphar's house, he goes to jail. And from jail, he gets brought to the king, Paro, to interpret dreams. And from there, he's made second in command of all of Egypt. So he goes from this rags to riches story, right? From the depths of, of, of the dungeon to the heights of nobility and royalty, ruling an entire, the most powerful country of the time. And of course, his father and his brothers are all brought down to Egypt and treated royally. But the whole time what the Torah focuses on is his incredible ability to maintain his level-headedness. He says over and over again, it's not I, but God who interprets dreams. It's not I, but God who will see to Paro's welfare. He's the one who tells me, Hashem, the interpretation of my dreams. Yosef never takes credit for himself. He's humble and fearless at the same time. And both of these traits are rooted in the same source. What's that source? He realizes that every challenge that comes to him and every challenge that he overcomes is only, is all in God's hands. Both the negative, the difficulties, and the story that happens to him, we know that when Yosef finally reveals himself to his brothers, his brothers are frightened. They say, oh no, when our father dies, this king is going to take revenge on us and what we did to him. And Yosef says to them, don't be afraid. You know, God caused all of this to happen. I'm at peace with it. I have accepted it. I know that nothing happens unless Hashem allows it, right? This is bitachon, this is emuna. And look where I am now. It was all for the sake of my becoming the head of this country and being able to save my family from famine, right? All the pieces of the puzzle are clear. Don't be nervous. And this is what makes Yosef humble, knowing, number one, that the challenges come from God, the ability to overcome the challenges, and also that anything can be taken away from him at any moment, right? So to be humble, in order to be a truly humble person, a person has to have very good self-esteem. You cannot be humble without knowing your strengths and who you are, right? Otherwise, it's false humility. So number one, to be humble, you need to have a deep appreciation of your own self-worth. And as Jews, that comes from the idea that I was created in the image of God. Elokai netzor l'shoni meira. Sorry. Um, um, Elokai. Hanashama shenatatabi tahorahi, right? The soul that you put in me is pure, right? I am a piece of you, God. I have the piece of infinity in me. I am the number eight. I'm like a fire who can rise above. 
This is where our self-worth has to come from, right? All men were created in the image of God. This American credo is a Jewish, is taken from the Jewish people. This was not the way of former civilizations. You were born into a caste system. If you were in the higher caste or the lower caste, it still exists in countries today. You were inferior. Only the Jews say all men were created equal in the image of God. This is where our self-esteem has to come from. I was created in the image of God. Number two, person with good self-esteem and the ability to be humble has to have self-acceptance. We've said this in many of my classes. My positives and my negatives are not of my own making. Hashem gave me all my positive attributes. So don't get all prided up because of them, because you didn't do anything to get them. Anything more, any more than you did with your negative attributes, which also God gave you, right? And I like to quote my mother always who said, you know, who I am is God's gift to me, but who I become is my gift to God. We're in this world to take that raw material, the negatives and the positives, and work with them. Can we take pleasure in the fact that we make ourselves into better people, that we develop ourselves to become more like God, more B'Tselem Elohim, right? To express more of that spiritual side of us, as opposed to just seeing ourselves as a material finite, going to the earth kind of being, right? As Adrian Gold likes to say, I, I have a body, I am a soul, right? This is the way great people see themselves, okay? So everything that I am, my positives, my negatives, I had nothing to do with. They're all a gift from God, whether I have more fire or water or wind or earth in me, God decided that. And what my struggles are going to be and what my great, my tickets to greatness are going to be each as individual as, as, as your fingerprints that nobody else in the world has the same ones, right? Even identical twins, their fingerprints are different. Okay. The third thing, self-confidence. I have the ability to succeed because my greatness comes from God. As Yosef said, he can help me overcome anything. So what do I have to be afraid of? So together with these three things, an awe of God is a necessary ingredient for greatness. The Torah tells us over and over again, when a person's poor, it's easy to believe in God, to ask God, to you know, beg God for things. But when a person becomes wealthy and self-sufficient, and feels like the top of the world, that's when his belief and his reliance on God begins to wane, right? It says about the Jewish people in the Torah, Yeshurun, another name for the Jewish people is Yeshurun, from the word Yeshar, waxed fat and kicked, that when the Jewish people meet success, material, whatever, secular, worldly success, Often what they will do is kick God away. I don't need you. I did it myself. Like every two-year-old says, I do it myself. 
I do it myself, right? I don't need you, right? And then we become teenagers, right? I don't need you. You know, I had a great book about teenagers. It was called Get Out of My Life. But first, could you take Cheryl and me to the mall, right? I don't need you. But we never grow out of this. Never. This is the way we are wired. That's why it takes tremendous free will choices to say, to be like the tzaddik, the the nun that bends its back and lets God rest there. Makes room for God by bending in submission and humility and recognition that I'm nothing without you. That I can get a migraine the next morning and not be able to get out of bed or vertigo or whatever renders us completely helpless and weak in a moment, right? So awe keeps you small and humble when you realize you're part of something much larger than yourself. Why do we go out into nature to have these incredible experiences, right? Why do people want to, you know, climb Mount Everest? Because they want the acceleration of feeling small, microscopic in the face of the hugeness and the vastness of the universe of of nature but it's really a god experience a tra- transcendent transcendental experience comes when we see our smallness in the face of all of this vastness and we realize that we're part of it that we're part of that right i want to tell you a story i mean it's been told in the in the name of one of the reichman um one of the Reichmans, a famous Jewish family that live in Toronto, but it could be, uh, it could be people have asked them, is this really a story from your family? I don't know what the answer was, but it could be anybody who you imagine is extremely wealthy and powerful person. Anyway, the story goes that before his death, he gave his children two envelopes that he said should be opened up after he dies. Actually, one of them should be opened up, yeah, right after he dies, okay? Basically, they opened up the first envelope, and there he wrote, I want to be buried in my favorite socks. You've heard this story? I want to be buried in my favorite socks. So, you know, this is a religious Orthodox family, and Jewish law is that when you get buried, you get buried with nothing, right? not like the pharaohs who got buried with all their riches so they could take them all with them, right? The idea is that you go with nothing, right? And, you know, they didn't know what to do with this request. Of course, they wanted to fulfill their father's request, but, you know, it was impossible. Anyway, they opened up the next envelope. And in the second envelope, what he wrote there was, I know you weren't able to bury me in my socks, I know that Jewish law forbids it, but I want you to have have learned a very powerful lesson. Even with my great fortune, with my power, and the incredible amount of possessions that I had, I can't even take my favorite socks with me into the next world. So don't forget what really matters. And I see we're getting close to the end of the time, so we're going to have to continue, I guess, next week, which is fine. But I want to end with a poem that I actually wrote when I was first becoming uh, more observant, more aware of, I guess, Judaism's spiritual take on life. 
And I, it, I only, I have this only because I, I read it to somebody the other day, it was relevant, but it really expresses the same idea that we heard from this great man who couldn't be buried with his socks and the lesson that he wanted to teach his children. So it's called Nothing Belongs to Us. I wrote this in 1984, actually on my, near my birthday, because this journal starts out December 2nd, and I was born December 1st. Anyway, nothing belongs to us. We come into this world with nothing, and we go out the same way. The only things we take with us are those things we gave away. The kindness that we did and the tzedakah or charity that we gave. The act of loving others with no selfish thought or pay. And when we leave this world, of one thing we are assured, our fame, though not the earthly kind, in heaven will be secured. Okay, anyway, this is where great leaders always have their eyes, right? They have their eyes on the awe of God and their smallness, which allows them to be humble. And at the same time, they appreciate that because they're made B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God, and that God has given them everything that they need to accomplish, as long as they don't give into their fear, right, which comes when our ego kicks in, and our ego and our negative self-talk says, oh, you can't do that. Oh, who do you think you are? You're never going to be able to do that. But when a person plugs themselves in to that infinity part of themselves and says, I'm just a vessel, right? I'm just a clee. And I can try. And if God wants me to succeed, I will. And if he doesn't, then fine. But it's not just about me, right? It's about so much more than that. Okay, Mirza Shem, next week we'll continue with our fire. And anyway, it's still Hanukkah and it's still the story of Yosef and Yehuda. So we're right in sync with the Parshas and with the holiday and the fire element. We should all grow and use it to develop ourselves to get higher not at the expense of other people, but through our own efforts. Thanks so much Thank for listening. You.